Hello, and welcome to the American Association for Respiratory Care's Industry Insights, where we talk with industry leaders in respiratory care and get a sneak peek into how they're working to improve the quality of care in the respiratory care profession. This is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. This is the second of three podcasts addressing the concerns around aerosol delivery and the most recent guidance in the setting of COVID-19. These are industry podcasts sponsored by Aerogen LTD. The moderator has been selected by the AARC, but the persons interviewed have been selected by Aerogen. In this podcast, we will address some of the recommendations related to aerosol delivery during the COVID-19 pandemic. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Antonio Anzueto to the podcast. Dr. Anzueto is chief in the pulmonary section of the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System, Audiel Murphy Memorial Veterans Hospital Division in San Antonio, Texas, where he also serves as medical director of the respiratory care department and medical director of the pulmonary function laboratory. He is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Texas Health at San Antonio. Dr. Anzueto, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dean, for the invite. Uh, I'm pretty excited to be here with you all and to discuss this important issue, you know, how should we manage our patients during the pandemic? Good. Well, in our first podcast, we introduced concerns around practice surrounding the use of nebulizers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here we will dive into this topic in more detail, specifically related to some guidelines that have been published related to the use of nebulizers during the COVID-19 pandemic. So my first question for you is, before COVID, what was your preference for aerosol delivery device? Did you prefer nebulizers, inhalers, some of both? Tell us about that. So, Dean, in uh, respiratory conditions, uh, COPD, asthma, the delivery of medications has gone through a tremendous revolution over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. We used to have those CFC devices. Those were determined who were affecting the ozone layer. Then we had the explosion of powder devices, HFAs, soft mist, uh, aerosolized and, and nebulized and inhalers. So uh, the, the message at the end of the day was we tried to tailor the device based on the patient needs and to have the whole availability uh, because there are individuals that clearly want to be able to do some of the uh, powder forms and they may need to kind of nebulize uh, delivery system. So it's pretty much tailored to the patient needs. So then how was your selection of an aerosol delivery device affected by COVID, particularly in patients who were not in the ICU, patients out on the ward? So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this phobia against nebulized medications. And everybody was determined that should go to HFA's uh, delivery system. Uh, and it was primarily based for the, from a publication out of Seattle, that showed that aerosolized medications uh, had healthcare providers had increased risk to develop COVID. But the caveat over there was that 
the, the healthcare providers were not wearing appropriate PPEs. The patients who had the COVID were not having the appropriate uh, isolation measurements. So sure, if you have an individual that is COVID positive and you have the, uh, and the, the provider not being protected, you have a high risk to develop the infection. So I think what, what this created is this phobia against nebulized medications without any justification and resulting in appropriate care on our patients. Now, there are a lot of terms that have sort of gotten thrown around related to this. Uh, so for simple-minded folks like me, it certainly seems obvious that nebulizers produce aerosols and nebulizer that doesn't generate an aerosol certainly will not be clinically effective. So there must be more to this story around aerosol generating procedures and so forth. So can can you help me and the listeners understand differences between things like aerosol generating procedures, bioaerosols, fugitive aerosols, aerosol, dispersion, distance, these terms get thrown around. And uh, I'm not sure people correctly understand what they mean. Yes, I'm with you. Uh, Clearly, an aerosol-generated procedure will be an individual who's having uh, like a a bronchoscopy, an individual that you're going to go into the airway, an individual who has a tracheostomy that is connected to aerosolized system, nebulized system into a bricks into the tracheostomy. Uh, the uh, uh, this bioaerosols is what comes out of the individual into the environment. But this issue about dispersion is actually by the size of the particles that we're learning is pretty much airway that will facilitate that. Now, the ones who are a little more challenging this fugitive uh, aerosol is um, do you know that, for example, if I'm going to be intubated an individual who's critical ill, uh, the area around the, the person the mouth may be, but if that person happened to cough or a patient already had the ET2 and happens to cough, that is going to this person is going to be around the, air, the room. So all these concepts, uh, the aerosol generation has completely changed how we do those procedures. Uh, and as a reason that we as a healthcare provider protect ourselves, use N95 masks, use PPEs to have to minimize the possibility of being contaminated. So nebulizers are used in patients with respiratory disease, obviously, and patients with respiratory disease will cough, and you kind of touched on this already a little bit. Uh, in fact, nebulizer therapy can be used in conjunction with airway clearance therapies. So again, what can be done to protect the caregiver from fugitive bioaerosols during these respiratory procedures? And I think you touched on it already a bit, but maybe you can expand upon that. Yeah, I mean, the the healthcare provider, the respiratory therapy, the individual uh, using a proper PPE will be protected, M95, face shield, and gowns. But here comes another important fact. 
nebulizer systems have gone to tremendous progress. So those uh, smoking pipes that we used to give our patients that sat in the emergency rooms with COPD exacerbation and all the steam coming in and out, we know that those are very inefficient. So that's why we have gone to new nebulizer, uh, the new vibrating mesh nebulizer that is incorporated into the the system of the BiPAP or is incorporated into a, as a nebulizer, those generates minimal amount of uh, vapors uh, that will uh, contaminate or affect the individuals who are around the subject who's taking the medication. So nebulizer therapy can also be used in patients receiving non-invasive ventilation. You already touched on that a little bit. Also drawing high-flow nasal cannula So what can be done to maximize caregiver protection in these settings like NIV, high-flow nasal cannula? At the same time that there was this fear to give nebulized medication during COVID, there's all these uh, issues that start circulating. Oh, patients should not be on high-flow oxygen. The high-flow oxygen can also be a dispersion and can have uh, aerosolized particle, non-invasive ventilation should also be done, but it comes down to, and we have seen that significant amounts of research demonstrated that all these interventions are safe. And if your patient is severe hypoxic, high flock and nasal cannulas has completely changed with treat these patients, has, has had a huge impact in the management of these patients it gives a little bit of CPAP, supports them for ventilation too, and are allowed to get 50, 60 liters of oxygen. If I go to around 70, 80%, patients can be supported without needed of the endotracheal intubation. So caregivers will use all their, their um, uh, protections here are going to be uh, safe and there is no need to give any additional uh, uh, protection to the individuals. I have shown some data on putting a face, uh, a surgical mask in a patient with a high flow oxygen. But the truth there is, and there is no need uh, for that. So I was going to need to ask you about that because that has been recommended in some papers to put a surgical mask on a patient receiving high flow nasal cannula. I don't think I have seen a lot of traction for that practice. So it's one of the things in the literature I don't know that it's done very uh, commonly. Uh, But I would agree with you. I think high-flow nasal cannula has had a big impact on management of patients with COVID-19. And in fact, you probably know this paper. There's a paper published uh, in the annals of the ATS a couple of months ago that's showing the use of high-flow nasal cannula actually frees up ventilators. So there are more ventilators available for the patients who really need it. And furthermore, but one of the questions was, okay, I use high-flow nasal cannula and using nebulized delivery devices. Is my hospital staff being exposed and an increased risk of developed COVID? And there are a couple of publications that have shown that that's not the case. It's a really nice case control study that shows that institutions who have implemented these interventions, they have not have increased uh, cases of COVID among their healthcare providers. 
and then patients can receive nebulized medications. A nebulized therapy can be connected to their system, especially using the vibrator mesh nebulizer that goes into the, uh, the, uh, the beginning of the system so the system doesn't have to be break, and that will further decrease the, the risk of aerosolization. The important thing that you've already said several times is that healthcare providers need to use personal protective equipment. So that is the, uh, the important reason why these therapies can be used without, uh, with, without harm to the, to the provider. So which, which guidance documents or key publications provide clear evidence-based recommendations around safe and efficient aerosol delivery in patients with COVID-19. Are there any in particular that you could describe or recommend? Yes, uh, Dean, uh, with the Gold Scientific Committee, we had a publication in January in the Blue Journal that uh, that publication is the the global initiative uh, statement for the diagnosis, management, and prevention in, in of COPD and during the COVID pandemic. And I think this, this document gives you a really nice summary of the interventions and how things are done. But the bottom line is that paper, there is a, a graph on page number of, uh, 27, or figure number one. The bottom line is continuous COPD maintenance therapy is the pivotal intervention that these patients have to have. We have to continue with their appropriate long-acting bronchodilators and deliver those medications in the more efficient way in order to be effective. It uh, doesn't make any sense if the patient is in non-invasive ventilation, the patient is in high-flow oxygen, and you try to give them uh, the ICS lava either in the powder form or in the HFA form and trying to then to coordinate when they have difficulty breathing while you could deliver those medications through a nebulizer system that is going to be safe, is going to guarantee that more medication enters into the patient's lungs to make it more effective. So you mentioned COPD, and earlier in the program you mentioned asthma. One of the things that I've been hearing is that short-acting bronchodilators are being used in some hospitals for patients with COVID, even patients who do not have a history of respiratory disease. So what what about that? What do you recommend uh, there? So, Dean, I've been, uh, been an advocate to not use medications that are not needed. Does it make any sense? Why are you going to start giving somebody albuterol Nebulize albuterol every four to six hours if they don't have bronchospasm. What they're going to get, they're going to get tremor, tachycardias, atrial fibrillations, and complications. So I am really, really strong about the use of medications that are not needed. It's like I'm going to give you insulin and you don't have diabetes. What are we going to expect? Side effects. And this is exactly what happened in these circumstances. Patients don't need to have albuterol. Uh, given on the regular basis because they have COVID. There is no need of that unless the patient has a reactive airway disease, a bronchospasm. So the goal should be given maintenance therapy, long-acting bronchodilator, and then the short-acting as a rescue as needed. 
I think you will likely be quoted by respiratory therapists who have just heard what you said, who are working at hospitals where they are being asked to administer albuterol Q4 for a patient who has COVID-19 and the patient previously had no uh, respiratory disease. So I I really uh, appreciate your comments about that. And I think it will help to bring bring clarity uh, to some people around that topic. And let me further compliment that. Uh, Even patients who have airway disease, that every four hours, uh, combinations of ipetropio, albuterol, or albuterol alone is not a treatment for airway diseases. It's not a treatment for COPD or asthma. The treatment is a long-acting bronchodilator once or twice a day, and the others as a rescue medications. That is the appropriate care for these patients. Thank you very much. That's very, very helpful, I think, for many of the individuals who will listen to this podcast. I don't think a podcast is really the easiest format to list literature references. If we were able to do PowerPoint slides, that would make that a lot easier. But with that said, are there any specific resources for additional information that the listener might consult for more detail? So I mentioned before the publication in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care in the Blue Journal of the Gold Statement. Uh, in the European Respiratory Journal uh, this month, there is a statement about therapies and intervention in a COPD. And that is a really nice uh, document, has a, a table to tell you which interventions have been are recommended and not recommended, and gives you a summary of the huge amount of literature that has been generated. Uh, you know, most of our listeners, as we, had been bombarded by uh, all this information. Plus, it's not only coming from our healthcare provider, it comes from our cousins, neighbors, and everybody and their brothers who have become an expert in COVID uh, of giving. So it's, sometimes it's confusing, you know, what should we do it? But the European Respiratory Society, the American Thoracic Society journals, they have a very nice reviews that can help to clarify uh, the questions you may have. So then what's the bottom line? So can nebulizers be used in patients with COVID-19? And if so, how can that be done safely with the caregiver in mind? Uh, What do you see as a standard of care in relation to this question? So the answer is, the bottom line is yes, nebulizing therapies can be given in patients with chronic lung diseases. Uh, they should be the way to protect the healthcare providers is using appropriate PPE, facial, N95, gowns, gloves, so they can be disposed. And the, uh, and the standard of care is the use of long-acting bronchodilators. The patient cannot tolerate it in the HFAs or the powder forms, nebulized alternatives. You know, the beauties we have today once-a-day LAMA, lonactive anticholinergic. We have several twice-a-day lonactive beta-2-agonists. We have inhaled corticosteroids. We can provide our patients appropriate medical care for the lung conditions using the nebulized uh, 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 via uh, the, the route and uh, using also new delivery systems like the vibrating mesh nebulizer systems incorporated into this 
will maximize medication delivery, will minimize aerosolization. And this not only applies when the individual is being in a hospital, this also applies when they are at home because they could be receiving these treatments at, at home as part of their, their regular therapies of their conditions. We have a home health program that we've been following hundreds of patients at home, and we have encouraged our patients to use the nebulized therapies at home at, on a regular basis. Great. Well, let's wrap up. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anzueto, for your participation. And again, I want to thank all of the respiratory therapists who contributed and I would say continue to contribute to the care of patients with COVID-19. Your skills and dedication have saved many lives. Thanks for listening to the American Association for Respiratory Care Industry Insights. Be sure to check our show notes page for links to our featured guests, as well as other podcast episodes. Be the first to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast.